Ceremony! Silver streaks across the sky show reason for concern Looking for a message in the clouds I'd like to bring to your attention An invitation to the bazaar The bazaar will be outstanding The elite will be attending All the ladies will be wanting With uncontrollable desire I'd like to bring to your attention An invitation to the bazaar The doors are open Come one, come all, bring a friend The bazaar is an experience Not to be forgotten I'd like to bring to your attention An invitation to the bazaar Our buildings to be constructed Our plans to be rejected Shall streets be paved with gold? Shall monuments be erected? Listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And who do we have in the studio today? Who are you? Ron Warren Ganderton. And who are you, Ron? Please explain. And what did we just hear? An invitation to the to bazaar. The bazaar. Um, songs off an album that I released in the 80s uh, with a band called Sound Ceremony. 
Sound Ceremony, Ron, welcome to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. Thank you, Nardwar. It's amazing how we met at Zulu Records. That's Could you right. explain to the people, I met you at Zulu Records. Actually, before we get into how we met, maybe just a bit of background on the band. Like, what is Sound Ceremony? When does it exist, exactly? Mm-hmm. And it's still going right now. A bit of background for the people. Uh started in London, England, and uh, we... Uh, sort of started in the days of independent records and punk and uh, days of uh, Rough Trade Records and Bonaparte Records and various small labels. Even Virgin at that time was uh, at a developing stage for new music. And uh, I decided to start recording and writing some songs. And uh, really what happened is the release of the first album were demo tapes. And we had a budget that I thought, whoa, this might be a chance to get some of the expenditure back, looking at it from a business point of view, and released our first album, Guitar Star. And that was 1978? I think so. I'm losing track of the years. And then you went on to another record. We did. Uh, it was Sound Ceremony, a sort of a self-titled album, and uh, the recording budget picked up a bit, so we ended up uh, getting a little better studio. In fact, the the first album was released at a um, electronic music studio. Um, what would you say? I think it was a, a a school course in recording. And uh, Phil, the instructor, uh, I told him I was going to try and maybe press this up. So we um, started off just making demos, and then the second album upped our budget. And then the third album, of course, uh, Precious as England was the title of the album, Sound Ceremony. And uh, we recorded that at Starfor Studios uh, in South London. And um, it was, again, uh, a, a much better production and quality. And uh, the assistant producers that were involved in it had a lot more knowledge than the budgets in the past. So our quality kind of um, upped the gear and uh, brings us to today, really. And last week in Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show, I played Nanny, and that's off Precious as England. Was it? Yes, that's right. Um, a little reminiscent of uh, uh, my grandmother. Incredible keyboards on that song, too. There were. That was uh, Martin Daly uh, was credited for it. Um, he uh, was using Moog in those days, so he had some very uh, sort of traditional sounds that he incorporated electronically, which really give me a, a sort of a leg up on my production. And we began the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show here today with the track Bizarre. What can you tell people about The Bizarre, an invitation to The Bizarre? Exactly, yeah. I think it was um, to, to, uh, a sort of a, a, a play on words with obscurity. and uh, I think of like Russian Bizarre. Oh, there you go. It means different to different folks, I guess. I, I was just really thinking markets, and I think there's lyrics that uh, um, refer to fancy dress and fashion and old fashion as such, and... Uh, all of a sudden, uh, the um, invitation to the bazaar was recorded. But I, I always wrote about alternative things in my life. I was never really one to think, oh, I'm going to write a hit or one to start writing songs saying I'm going to have a popular song. They're always play on words. So uh, the inspiration at times, I wonder still to today where it came from myself. 
how many record stores have you been to? Because it seems like you've been making the rounds. And how did you end up bumping into me? This is where you were at Zulu Records taking photos That's on right. the street. Oh, there you like go. I, I saw you taking photos on the street yeah. of Zulu Records. I wondered if you remembered that. Because all of a sudden, I'm out front and I'm taking pictures because of um, my involvement on the Vancouver scene now. I really want to get sort of... Uh, on the ground. So I was going around to all the stores at Stock Sound Ceremony Records. And Zulu, as we did talk about on that day, was one of the first uh, record stores that actually took um, the first release of Guitar Star here in Canada. And I'm out front reminiscing and taking pictures of this. And then all of a sudden, everybody's looking out the window. And I was trying to catch the sign and the, the structure of the building. And all of a sudden, I've got these faces looking and I'm seeing them through the lens. And I thought, geez, that guy looks familiar and then when I got in the store I had brought the release of the second album uh, I, I think it is Guitar Star now and um, talking to the, the chap in the store and all of a sudden um, he, he says oh there's someone here that I'd like to introduce to you and that's how we met. That's incredible it I was. love that. I was thinking about today I think it was a destiny thing most of the people that I've met in my recording career I've never really gone out of my way to meet like pop stars or smooths or hang out but the people I've met in my life have always had lots of longevity and um, I hope our relationship goes that way as well but I think um, probably on this scene we were just uh, meant to meet well what's interesting Ron of Sound Ceremony we're speaking here to Sound Ceremony on an Ardwarty Human Serviette radio show is I've heard your legend here and there around Vancouver for a little while like I remember once I came at the CITR and music director said hey I guess your manager dropped by the re-release of your record That's to right. CITR and I think I was at Neptune Records and somebody was saying oh yeah we just got this record in from Sound Ceremony and they pointed to it like man that's the legend and then I'd read about Sound Ceremony in zines and stuff and I thought man this is this is legendary I can't believe here's Ron giving me his records at Zulu Records out of the blue it was incredible well it's been an exciting day for me because it's amounted to the radio station activity now and uh, things go forward and sometimes it's hard to meet these people you never know when you're calling them up whether they want to entertain you or not so sometimes when destiny happens like this it's it's more comfortable for me to uh, deal with the situation when it starts off on a friendly basis rather than me trying to sell my records to you when did you sense your lp had become legendary because your lp i'm thinking of the sound ceremony one that we played off the top all your lps are legendary but when did you first sense that like your lp had become legendary because i'm imagining it's this one sound ceremony when did you get a, a sense well you know it's really funny i still haven't got a grip on it because this is really what has made my career go forward because i didn't start off being a pop group or trying to write hit songs and the first album i i come back to Canada and it was in a shop in Victoria and they did an interview I think or a review of the album and uh, the guy says what's going on here this is a, a Canadian musician he's come back from England and I've just had to buy his album for like 250 bucks to even do the review of it well I couldn't bring them through the customs to bring them to Canada because I didn't have really a, 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 a an import license so I had to pay taxes and uh, the distribution wasn't really at that time organized as well as it did get through Caroline Records a version where I was becoming an export 
airport. And all of a sudden I thought, God, this album has sort of been coming to a collector circle. And then I got back to England and found out that there was a, an al- a, a, a magazine called Record Collector that had it listed in there. And the prices were like absurd. And I was still having to struggle selling existing stock and distributing it around the world. But meanwhile, guys, vital junkies and traders were trading these things off and putting price tags on them that I had never imagined. And um, the, the second album went into Collector Circle. And then I think nowadays even Precious as England has reached uh, that level. And I've often wondered how this really happened. But it, it's the, the blessing to my career because uh, it, without it having the collector's value, um, I quite wouldn't have maybe had the career that I've got going on at the moment. So you recorded the LP, Sound Ceremony, in like 1979, but it wasn't until when did you realize that people were like looking for you, wanting more information on it? And how come they hadn't contacted you before? Because it's been marketed as, quote, like private outsider psych. A lot of times it's called private outsider psych. When was the first time you got an inkling people were out after you or looking for you? Why was it such a mystery? Because their information is not on on the record? Well, there was a few moves. The the people that were at the last phone number used to ring us up and say, could you get this number changed off your record so that our contact number were getting calls to an address or a phone number that wasn't that same record company number anymore. And um, all of a sudden, uh, seeing it in Record Collector um, was a start. And then I did start to meet. I met a, a, a guy named Paul Majors that turned out to be an incredible guitar player out of New York and uh, Paul came to London and introduced himself to me through an old friend of ours Susan Majors from Boston that lived in New York and worked in these record shops how did he find you though um I think through Did he just Susan go to Major. Uh, they worked together. What happened is Paul and Susan worked in a record shop in the village in New York together. And she says, oh, I know this guy from Sound Ceremony. And Paul said, wow, what a weird album. And, How did um, she know you? Uh, she came to London through uh, a record collecting search and met the guy next door to me, um, Alan Batterby, that worked at EMI Records, through an advertisement that he advertised in New York about this quantity of collector's records. And she came all the way to London in search of collecting records for her shop in New York. And um, she says, oh, I have this album. And and she said... Um, it, Oh, that's pretty cool. And she says, oh, the, he said the guy next door, as he said, she said here, she said the guy, Ron, lives next door and introduced me to her. So I wandered around London showing her various record shops. So she reciprocated and said, when I come to New York, um, there was a place to stay. And I took full advantage of that. And uh, then I ran around New York with her stocking shops there. And um, one of my claims to fame was meeting Bleaker Bob from Bleaker Bob Records in New York. York. And um, he took a box of uh, records that I got into the USA from England. And then when the second album came out, I headed straight to Bleaker Bob's. And he says, oh, no, not you again. I must be your favorite fan. And um, he bought another box of records. So it was my introduction to working into the USA, which was also kind of a select uh, audience that he seemed to stir up for me. What year did you meet her in England initially? 
Well, you know, I really can't say. I guess it was early 80s, late 70s. And what store was she working with? Um, I, I really can't remember the name of Susan's shop in, in the village. I'm, but she was associated with Paul Major. That's right. Paul Major, who plays in a band called Endless Boogie. What's interesting is when your record was re-released, it was with Kenneth Hingley's Attic Demonstration. Oh, I didn't know that myself. And Kenneth Higley's Attic Demonstration is like probably the rarest, most exciting private outsider psych record there is. Well, there you go. To be honest with you, I hadn't even heard of that site. And um, I'm just so grateful that these people are picking up on it. It's incredible how the music has lived on and not been forgotten. However, it's been here the entire time. Like, check this out right now, Ron. I'm speaking to Ron from Sound Ceremony, looking at his 1979 album, Sound Ceremony. This is CITR, the record label, CITR Radio, where we are right now, our own copy. And do you see what's written on there? You should see this. The whole sleeve is covered in red pen. And what does it say? Do you want to read that? Um, Can you read that? Vancouver Island's own recording artist, Ron Warren Ganderton, master mind behind sound ceremony uh, graduating from high school um, to make uh, his fortune as a rocker is one of the uh, 31 LPs by sound ceremony or three LPs sorry absolutely incredible work of art Um, the vision um, insanity of emotion and the subtitle uh, Paul uh, lost that one continued in Ron's music and all combined to read or read this as a, a collagen facilitating manics and images uh, strangely, strangely unified. Don't play this record just because it can, Con. Actually, yeah, don't play this record just because it's CanCon. In other words, Ron was reading right there a review written right on the original copy of Sound Ceremony that was been in the CITR vaults for all these years, just yeah. sitting there, and it was genius back then. It was a great review. They're saying, play this. This is incredible. So you got great, did you get good reception? Because this has gotten a great reception at CITR uh, uh, over the years. You know, I'm flattered. I'm too flattered. It really creates a bit of humbleness because uh, I, I never really, plan to be like a, a pop star but it sure is good for the ego to think that somebody thinks something of it and looking into this it's interesting to see ron we didn't mention this from nanaimo and it mentions ladysmith here did this guy have some interesting background information on you well i've always tried to keep um where i was born um a bit more of a secret um it's a pretty small town and uh it certainly didn't encourage my career i wanted to get out of that graduating town so from high school in lady smith <laughs> well actually um i got mixed up in a little um not wanting to go to school in my 12th year so uh to set that record straight i came over from the island to go to eric Hamber. so i completed my 12th year of high school here in vancouver Maybe with Canadian heavy metal legend Thor. Oh, I don't know. He went to Eric Hamber, too. Oh, I do remember Thor now with the great big dogs or something. Yes, keep the dogs away. Yes, he went to Eric Hamber, too. Oh, cool. Yeah. He might have been a few years earlier than you. And you are, of course, Ron from Sound... Ceremony. Sound Ceremony. And I thought right now we would play some more Sound Ceremony. We have queued up here right now the track 
Rock Work. What can you say about the track Rock Work that we're going to hear right now by Sound Ceremony on an Ardwarda Human Survey Radio Show? Um, imply chords and uh, and keys of the song and riffs in the key of G. And um, it was starting to feel like work so i titled the song rock work and it's just the experience of writing a song uh, and some obscure lyrics about doing that so here we have sound ceremony from 1979 with rock work on the nardwar the human serviette radio show
kid I thought I'd be Then kissed another and another and another I got a rock hard inside me Stop, stop, don't come near me Don't, don't, can't you hear me? I, I, I don't want to do it Fancy pants, fancy pants Can I get them off her? She's so English, I need her, I want her Rock hard, can you hear the beat of my rock hard? Rock hard, can you hear the beat of my rock hard? Rock hard, can you hear the beat of my rock hard? Rock hard, can you hear the beat of my rock hard? Rock hard, can you hear the beat of my rock? And you're still listening to the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show with... Ron Morton Ganderton. A.K.A. Sound Ceremony. Sound Ceremony. And Ron, tell me about the tracks we just heard right there. Rock Hard? Hmm. Yeah. I tell the truth, I can't remember a lot about it. Um, listening to some of the lyrics, I think uh, I was kind of reminiscing my... Uh, uh, opportunities of finding Miss Wright or something by the sound of it. I was actually wondering about that song because when I first heard it, I thought it was called Rock Hard. Yeah. And I thought you were saying you're rock hard inside of me. Well, there you go. It, it is uh, a bit kind of hard to get the uh, pronunciation right on that. <laughs> and there are quite a few songs on the record 
directed to the ladies, aren't there? Was there a special lady? Well, considering I'm still single, um, there mustn't have been. <laughs> Baboon! I, I kind of knew. I, I, I never planned on getting married. Even when I was a teenager, I thought um, my guitar was kind of uh, an obsession. And I wouldn't want to kind of count the amount of girlfriends that uh, said, are you just going to sit there all day playing the guitar? Can we go out tonight? I said, well, you can go if you want. Um, and uh, next thing you know, they weren't coming back. And before that, we heard Guitar Star. Yeah, um, I guess uh, subliminally, I did fancy being uh, a little more successful than what things turned out like. But um, I did imagine that playing this guitar, you might get a big car and a big house. And uh, so uh, I, I started just thinking of all the, the dreams of what the material world might uh, come up with. And those are the lyrics that uh, I came up with. And was that Mr. Pretenders on drums on that one? Ah, there you go, Martin Chambers. I did want to kind of put in a bit of a, a plug for Martin or a shout out if he's um, anyone in the world listening. And uh, um, we met in uh, a studio in South London, the the studio that I was working in. I needed a drummer. And they said, oh, we got a good drummer that comes in here and does work for us. And I said, well, this could be a hard uh job for him and um they rang him up and he came down i met him and we just clicked right from the start and um and by the time the album was released it was a funny story the way it happened i had a girlfriend that was in the flat at the time she let this guy in i was having a bath and i came wandering into the room stark naked and ran right into martin uh the girl at the time, Carolyn, she says, oh, Martin's here, Ron. And I was standing there nude. I says, oh, great. I've got a record for you. He says, well, that's what I'm here for. And um, he told me of his achievement at that time. He had met a girl and he says, oh, she plays like Jimi Hendrix, which uh, um, remained to be seen, but certainly turned out very successful in a band with Chrissy Hind and the Pretenders. So it's the last time that he saw you when you were totally naked. Is that the last time no, he saw fortunately, you? Fortunately, um, the last time I saw him was he played in a band and perhaps still does with Dave Stewart from the Rhythmics. Um, I met Dave in Camden through Annie Lennox, who I auditioned as a backing vocalist for my first album. And she was from Scotland and she moved in almost next door to me. And one day we bumped into the each other at the Camden Market says, oh, this is um, my buddy Dave, plays guitar, and we started a band called The Tourists, and um, they had a successful group, and then Martin ended up playing with Dave Stewart in a, a band called The Spiritual Cowboys. So, strangely enough, these people running parallels in your life, um, and very successful rock stars, for want of other words. Now, Annie Lennox, you auditioned her, and she failed? What happened? She didn't Fail. Um, what happened was I was so slow, and because uh, I was thinking that's a lot of good punk cred. You know, a lot of punks would have failed her. A lot of punks would have said out. Yeah, well, there you go. But she had just moved down from Scotland, and I could barely understand the words she said with her Glaswegian accent. And I thought, God, I can't imagine her singing very well. Turned out to be very uh, successful and one of the best uh, female vocalists in the world, I guess you might say. So she's not actually on your recording. She then. didn't. I never really called her back but i still got for prosperity we were using the word earlier i still got the original um interview list with annie lennox in red pen on there and martin though does appear on the record he and we does. just heard it right there That's with guitar right. star he martin was on Chambers. that he played on the guitar star and album. we began with rock work 
That's right. And you're saying you're working on new tunes. You have a guitar tune worked, ready to go. Because a lot of your tunes have the word guitar rock in them, don't they? And you got a new one. I must be obsessed with guitar. And um, get ready for this, Nick. Are you out there listening? Um, A colleague of mine from the record label, Nick Williams, uh, from One Kind Favor Records, uh, uh, he's down in Jamaica Plains, Massachusetts, in the big U.S. of A. Um, I have a new song called Guitars in Your Face. And the chorus line goes, guitars, guitars, guitars in your face. And um, it's pretty much uh, recorded. Um, It's got uh, the most um, obscure guitar sounds that I ever thought that I was going to be creating with all these uh, digital effects and all the ModCon recording that I do nowadays on Logic Pro. And we have a caller. Caller, are you there? Yes, hello. Uh, I was just listening to your show with my wife, Nancy, and... uh, well, no, you know, you're just, you're evil people. You people are spreading the filth of the bad gospel, and you will, uh, will, you should go back onto that interweb or computer thing back and, and just stay there and quit being such a fiddle faddle with this vinyl, this and that, and smoking reefer. And I don't know, you're just a You're evil. psychic, yeah. caller. Before you hang up, caller, you're psychic. Yeah. Because, Ron, you have some songs about Satan, don't you? I do. Well, no, yeah, you no, do. The no, devil no, is in no, here. No, we yeah, can what, play it for you. Yeah, we'll play that. What's the song about Satan that you have for the caller? It's actually called, oh, I think, The well, Devil's no, Lawyer. Was, uh, no, it was, uh, I was driving down the Highway 101 from California from Red Bluff to San Diego one time. And, uh, you're, and, you're psychic because I think Ron went to California, too. It had a very satanic kind of law. You're two lives parallel, caller. It's amazing. Yes. Do, do the loot yes. do, caller. Well, 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 no, 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 not in my house, no. That works! And you're still listening to the Nardwar, the human Soviet radio show. Amazing! The caller likes Satan. You have a Satan song. The caller went to California, and you went to California. Growing up, let's go back to California there, Ron, of sound ceremony there. I was curious. Nanaimo, British Columbia, Canada, Lady Smith kind of mentioned that a little bit. Growing up, did you play any bands? What were the bands called? Because the Sonics from Seattle, Washington, they played at the Departure Bay Hall in 1966. What have you had a chance to be able to play there or would you have a chance to be able to see that gig well i i don't know about that particular gig because actually they were just a little bit older than probably i would have been loud out of the house but i know the departure bay hall and the sonics louis louis i believe or no that was the kingsman the sonics um were a, a, a favorite band of mine as i grew up what bands do you remember at departure bay hall any of them were um, gigs there you know who, who just putting in a shout out to Nanaimo and of course the Malaspina um, or the radio station out of the college on the island. Um, the, the Guess Who were one of the most famous bands that I bumped into at a young age. Uh, a friend of mine, we went to um, a Guess Who gig at the Legion in downtown Nanaimo and uh, Randy Backman had a guitar. In those days, I forget what this guitar was called. It was a very modern guitar out of California, a Moss Wright. That was it. And they were worth a fortune. And Roy, my buddy, had a Les Paul from the 1950s and Randy Backman talked him into trading his Moss Wright for this Les Paul, the Moss Wright it's probably worth 200 bucks out the less problems probably worth 5,000 oh my god I've had a chance to talk to Randy about that since I never have because he is around and he is on the islands he, he too is, isn't he on Salt, Salt Spring, Spring Island what local bands did you know growing up were there any local bands you mentioned the Guess Who just seeing them but were there any local bands there was a band called the Pharaohs Peter Kelch and the Pharaohs do you remember that band at all were there any local Vancouver Island bands what Vancouver Island stuff do you remember the Pharaohs uh, 
you know, we never had any like recording artists or successful bands, but still to today, it's strange how you aspire because I almost get so jealous of this. I mean, if I'm ever talking to any of my high school or junior high school uh, students that we went to school with, they always remember, oh, do you remember this band? And they were like our junior high school band, and they kind of never did anything after that, but most of the people in the high schools remember them more than anything. Do you remember the name? I don't. In fact, I don't even want to... You know, I'm going to do this for you. There was a band, and in fact, why I'm going to do this is Dawn. Um, The drummer of the band was a DJ here in Vancouver. He studied at uh, BCIT, and um, he went on to be uh, a DJ here in Vancouver, and the name of his band was Arthur Steampump. Did they release anything? They never did, no. They just played covers, and they played at what we called sock hops. You moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. At least you went to school with Eric Hamber. Now that that's out of the bag. And then eventually, you ended up traveling to California? That's right. And that was a, a link of... So no my, bands in Vancouver at all, then? Um... Not really for me. My, my claim to fame here in Vancouver was still very exciting. I was unemployed and wanting to be a professional musician, and it was through a government grant I got this job through what we call the ministry now, and I worked at the Musician's Resource Service here in Vancouver, and we were kitty-corner to the Musician's Union, and we had an office that I shared with Paul Holven, and Paul in those days um, was a, a, a very... Um, uh, uh, he, he worked hard with the Commodore Ballroom, Paul Hoven did. And um, Paul and I worked in this office, and we got a list of all the local musicians. And all day long, I used to phone up and say, oh, there's a jam here. Or I'd call up and say, oh, these guys need a drummer, and just tried to encourage the Vancouver scene. And at that time, who we never met then, um, was... Um, working for the Georgia Strait um, from the Bob Gildoff. Bob Gildoff. So there was parallels there that I did cross paths with uh, Bob in London more. But what I did... Did he remember you from Vancouver? Um, just. I, I told him of how we used to communicate with the Georgia Strait and we were the Musicians Resource Service and it was slightly in his mind. But by that time, he was working full tilt with the Boomtown Rats and doing very well. And I'm not too sure whether he remembered his Vancouver days. He often kind of, uh, it came up in conversation, but, um, he, he went on to extraordinary big things with his, uh, um, aid program from Africa and actually re-releasing the aid thing with the new musicians this year. But just back to the musicians resource service that took me to the States, I got very ambitious and contacted a place in San Francisco called the switchboard and an office in Hollywood called the contact service. And I used to take my time off from Vancouver and drive down the West Coast and go to San Francisco and then down to Hollywood and then back up to San Francisco and then back up to Vancouver with any contacts that I could create for the local scene here in Vancouver. Who were you meeting? What promoters? Did you meet Bill Graham and stuff? Did you no, go to the Sunset you know, Strip? Nobody. Frank Zappa? Yeah, nobody that I can really say that was an incredible... So uh, did the contacts help then? Yeah, there you go. I'm not really too sure what it amounted to. Amazing to get paid for that, though. There you go. I thought I'd made it to the top. 
And there was some mention that you went to a guitar factory, too? Oh, there you go, down in Kalamazoo. I bought a um, Gibson SG in, in um, Pasadena, California. And because I was so excited about guitars in those days, I went straight to the factory in Kalamazoo, and they set it all up for me. And it was an exciting sort of experience in guitar tech. Traveling to Europe, how did you end up in Europe? Because you went over there to trace Jimi Hendrix's fabled tour schedule. Who did you go with? Well, I went on What did you own. do there? I, uh, one of my colleagues at the resource service here in Vancouver um, was from England. And he said to me, as he got here, he says, through your father, you could get a passport and go to London. And that place is rocking at the moment with punk and all kinds of opportunity. So I decided to, um, that's where I went, straight from that job here in Vancouver to London and uh, in 1972 and at that rate there was um, a tour in Europe I was hitchhiking around. Because there was no punk in 72. Wasn't it? No it wasn't really till well, about 76. Go. Well 75 yeah. proto-punk but England you know safety was pin was more like 75 at least it, 75. To get facts straight I do remember because I went to London and not a lot was going back. Who I met in those days was Rory Gallagher a very proficient uh, Irish guitar player and I thought that was the first like professional guitar player I met at a place called Guitar Village in London and then I got a bit stressed thinking this might not be happening and I came back to Van Vancouver. I actually flew back to Toronto, then went back to Vancouver, and then years later, I returned to London, and that's when more of the punk thing was kicking off. Did you get to drink with Rory Gallagher? Sadly to say, I did. He, he was uh, a heavy drinker. But some fun times, though? Yeah, kind of. He, he could sure play the guitar. And back to Toronto and in Vancouver, did you jam with anybody in England that first time over or when you went to Europe? Because then you go to Europe, too. I, I, I did. Um, to, to just quickly get on the Jimi Hendrix tour, I was hitchhiking around um, Europe and I think we were down in Rome and somebody said uh, Jimi Hendrix is playing here tonight and I got picked up by some guys in a Volkswagen bus and they all went to the gig and I don't know if they had tickets or something and then they decided they were going to follow that tour so we just ended up riding every date that he went to until we ended up in Copenhagen in Denmark which is totally north from the south in Italy and then that's where we abandoned it so we ended up hanging out at about three or four I can quite honestly not really remember well wait a second here i thought you were just following the tour because you liked the places that Jimi hendrix went i thought he was long dead but he was actually alive he was still alive whoa so you yeah. actually followed him did we you get were to right meet him at, all? at every all of those venues i never actually got into any of them but we were right there in the crowds and from the next date we went on to the next city with the tour so it was quite exciting what do you remember about his gear and what do you remember about those gigs and what well, do you remember about the crowds were there big crowds Coming back here to Vancouver is where I do remember Jimi Hendrix. I went to see Jimi Hendrix at the Pacific Coliseum. Was that in 67 then? Um, I'm That's not when too sure when that date was, but I had the original like handout leaflet from that date that I kept for years. And one night I came back from England, I got severely drunk and lost my briefcase with the Doors handout and the Jimi Hendrix handout in it. And then like about a month later, I read in Georgia Strait saying, um, Collector wants any handouts from Doors and Jimi Hendrix, $250 for each handout. And by that time, I had lost it on a drunk that's what you remember about the Vancouver show? Nothing right. particular? How about the Europe shows? Like, to actually sing Hendrix that many times? Um, 
I, I actually didn't see him. We were just on location, hanging around the venue and hanging out in front and meeting different Europeans and different languages. So all I remember is he was a rock star, and I remember the night he kind of died and uh, heard of the drug overdose. And in fact, to continue on my relationship with the Hendrix activity with Destiny as well, he had a, a tribute to the house that he lived in. And Peter Townsend was there, and I was actually in the film at a short spot on this film, Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney were unveiling a plaque in London in the house that Jimi Hendrix lived. And I think it was either Beethoven or Chopin or some great um, classical um, songwriter lived in the same house as Jimi Hendrix. So there was a plaque of like Beethoven and then below it is Jimi Hendrix lived here. And they had these heritage plaques. And I was there with Jimi Hendrix's father at the unveiling of this plaque in London at whatever date that was, too. Now, how did you know to go out to that? And can people see you in video? Um, they, they can. It was actually on a television show in London. My neighbor knocked on the door and said, oh, you should come over and see this. You're in this um, unveiling of Jimi Hendrix's plaque. And it was uh, filmed and made into a television show, which I haven't really seen or heard since. But Paul McCartney was there. Linda, And in fact, I might still have this. Um, Linda McCartney threw a handful of this little glitter out. It was little cuts of tinfoil and purple and orange and glitter. And I remember at the end of it going around and picking up this glitter, glitter and putting it in a, um, a pill box. And I kept that for years with a collection of guitar picks that I had. So were you invited to be there? I was invited. It was under what capacity? Well, how did you know Paul no, It was open them. to the public, but um, I, again, I had colleagues in the industry, and they had said this was going on, and you should come as an event. And it just so happened, as they were filming it, I ended up uh, with a few sort of shots of, in the film. Bet on life. Exactly. To win. <laughs> and that's what we're going to hear right now. We're talking here to Ron from Sound Ceremony. And Ron has three LPs of Sound Ceremony out there for people to purchase if they want. Reissued LPs, right? That's sounding right. special. Sounding uh, extra special. You know, if we've got a minute to go into this, I was determined to kind of get this plug in today. I've never really pushed my albums. They go out and buy my records or anything like that. But I can tell you nowadays, with going into this collective, seen if you get your hands on the first copies of the editions of any of those three records you've got your hands on some collector's vinyl and then now through the label one kind favor and nick williams reissuing these records that they also are online or if you go on ebay or they're trading even the reissues that someone emailed me from london saying something about fifty dollars an album for the reissues on ebay and um you know like i'm selling them here to shops in uh, vancouver for ten dollars they're selling from anything from 10 to $20 and if you can get your hands on them you've got your hands on some collector's uh, um, things which in fact collector's vinyl they often say oh this is collectible this is collectible but the sound ceremony albums are officially collectors Bet on life to win. What can you tell people about bet on life to win? Um, I've always had a little bit of a gamble on this career. I always knew this was the only thing I was going to do. And a few lyrics came to mind about take a chance on this and take a shot at it. And perhaps uh, it will be more successful than you ever imagined. Tobacco Man, we're also going to hear. There you go. I'm loving this song. I want to re-record it and take some of the radical lyrics like burn down the plantation out because I don't want 
end up on a no-fly list to the USA. But I've always been like an anti-smoker of uh, cigarettes and for health issues and came up with uh, a profound guitar riff, as you're going to hear it, and still very proud of that riff and trying to commercialize the song a bit more. And in the months to come, it will be anti-smoking day. And um, I hope you're all out there listening to this uh, song, Tobacco Man, No Smoking. So here we go. Bet on life to win and Tobacco Man by Sound Ceremony from Sound Ceremony 1979 on the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. Red light shining in the city Streets that glitter look oh so pretty All the girls with fancy clothes on The fair's past I can remember All the girls that have surrendered Loving dreams they want to go on Come on girls, keep on grabbing With a way that seems uncertain One more time You'll hit it She came on at 19 so strong I thought I would never go on Now I know the girls from women Come on girls, I'll lead you on Here's your big chance, now don't miss it Love at first sight, get on with it I encourage girls beyond the limits Silver on her lips, she's a prop. 
tobacco man, it's all worthless. I will destroy the plantation on this earth. Light it up, burn them down. Smoke them out, I'm gonna beat you, man. You hurt my brother, you've wasted our land. I don't want a cigarette, no tobacco man. Don't give up the fight, go on, stop the habit. Let's get together, we can make it happen. No more tobacco fields, stop smoking. I don't need a cigarette, I'll start a revolution. I'll fight for the people, organize power, burn down the plantation. I'll burn and rape and plunder, all in the name of hell. I'll put tobacco under. Are you with me? Say I. Let's hold our ground, let's make a stand. The world will not regret it. Earth will be a better place for those who live upon it.
city Hear the captain mating call Knights, Brits, Chelsea, Soho East End, ring the bow bell Music to the ear I'm sure we all agree There is no other place on earth As precious as England I feel so happy feel so good country ride a coach up the motorway all's well in the midlands there is no other And you're still listening to the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show with sound ceremony. And Mr. Sound Ceremony, Ron, who are you again, in case people are wondering? What have we been hearing today on the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show? Well, sound ceremony songs, uh, albums that were released uh, independently in the uh, boom of uh, independent and new music. We heard right there, Precious as England from 1981, with some great Moog on there, you were saying. That's right. Yeah, the producer, Martin Daly, um, was a Moog player, and um, he decided to kind of up the sound production and uh, played Moog on there, which still today I enjoy listening to myself. And that was your tribute to England? It kind of was. I don't know. It was also dedicated to any royalists out there, to the um, the 
wedding of uh, um, Lady Diana and Prince Charles. Uh, but uh, I was uh, so happy living in England and, and having this break that I did get. Um, at that time, there was no more precious place for me to be than um, England for my music career. What was the reception for that song? What was the reception like in all these songs? Uh, what was the reception? They seemed so instantly catchy and happy and great. What was the reception? Yeah. What did people think of them? That was a tough call because it was still in my colleagues being a lot of punks and they were like anti-royalists. So uh, this Canadian songwriter writing a song about how precious was when they were calling anarchy in the UK and they all wanted out. That's punk, though. There you go. Uh, how about the other songs? How was the reception for them? Because we also heard Bet on Life to Win and Tobacco Man. What were the reception for them? Just in general, for the songs. Well, um, what I can remember is um, about one song, and it was uh, Life After Death, or Sound After Death, which was about a, a song of, is there any kind of sound after death? Um, and I, I linked up with a, a record label and they were called Pinnacle Records and they had a great label going and they had great distribution and export throughout the world and they wanted to release Sound After Death as a single and I used to go into meetings with them and they would listen to this song over and over and trying to say, do we want to release this and I couldn't believe the lyrics myself and I could barely listen to my own voice and by that time in an hours meeting what are the lyrics um sound after death sound after death and um um can you hear these sounds and w w if you do pass through will you hear these sounds ever again after death and um I was just so sick of hearing those songs, or that song and those lyrics that I was kind of hoping that the single might never get released and it didn't <laughs> You returned to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada to consign some records, saying at Zulu Records. That's right. Were you watching the local scene at that time, like DOA, etc.? Um, All the band DOA, Point of Stick, Subhumans? You know, I, I know more about them now than I did then because it was so hard to get out of the Vancouver scene with all the monopoly on the magazines we had in London were um, uh, 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 NME, Musical Express, a Melody Maker, MM, and Sounds magazine, and it was pretty hard for Canadian artists to get um, their name about in there. But um, I, every time I did get back and going into le local record shops, I was hearing more and more about the Vancouver scene as the years did go on. And DOA are still rocking. That's in right. fact, they're playing an anti Kinder Morgan benefit show this Saturday, January the 31st at the Biltmore, and all funds go to the Kinder Morgan Pipeline Expansion Protesters League. Eagles Defense Fund and tickets are $20 at the door. It features DOA, Ford Pierre, Aging Youth Gang, Holly Arntzen, No Mothers, and Remember Light Bright. DOA, this Saturday, a benefit. They're still doing it. They're still Sounds rocking. Sounds good to me. Just like you, Ron, sound ceremony. And then back in England, how did you get going in England? Did you just happen to meet all the right people? Who was Keith Turner? Oh, Keith Turner was a colleague of mine that um, I would like to say hi to. I don't know if he's down there in California now listening to this, but um, he was a bass player and I was walking down the street and he was carrying uh, a guitar case and um, 
I, I, I says, ah, you play guitar? He says, no, it's a bass guitar. And I, I says, ah, I play guitar and I write songs and I sing. And we chatted and we walked along through Piccadilly to a place where he was working. He's a guitar tech in Ivor Morant's music shop in London, England. And um, we hit it off and he started recording with me. And um, still to today, he's my go-to guy for uh, any of the production and technology. And he went on to... Uh, a, a total different spectrum of music than um, w he works together with me on. He plays progressive rock, which was all inspired by Genesis and Yes, and it's like classical music, and they rock, and he's still doing it today out of California with a band called Quasar. Johnny Rotten, though, loved progressive, progressive rock, although he probably doesn't. He does admit it. He loves the magma, bands like that. And it was Keith, a progressive rocker, to introduce you to Sex Pistols. Like, when did you discover punk? Um, I discovered punk mostly through, again, it was destiny. I, I wasn't really on my way out to ever meet anybody. And um, I, I had known that my neighbor was Bernie Rhodes. And he, every time he rolled around the block in his Rolls Royce with Clash um, on his personal license plate. He had I a thought, Rolls Royce? That's right. He had a Rolls Royce with a, a personal number that said The Clash. I never would have thought the manager of The Clash would have a Rolls Royce. Yeah, he was very it successful. Had a, it said Clash on the license plate as well? Exactly. Did the band ever ride in the Rolls? Um, you know, they did. Of course they did. Um, even though the anti-establishment, Bernie um, took all those bands like Subway Sect and the, the Vibrators Connection and the Clash to, to new levels of, of commercial success. And I kind of wanted a bit of it. So when I had my albums released, I went to Bernie and knocked right on his front door and introduced myself saying, I just live next door to you here. And um, I was wondering if you'd be interested in managing this. I got a problem at the moment i need a drummer for my next album and he says um vic goddard has a band called subway sec and his drummer is sort of out of work at the moment because vic's kind of in between albums and um i think robert would be happy to uh come out and play drums on your next album and um he says uh, I'll, I'll take you down to our studio tonight and we went down to his studio and um there was all the guys from the class um, finishing off their rehearsal and Subway Sect was about to start introduced me to Vic who is still on my communications now but poor old Robert um, died from a drug overdose and uh he no longer uh, is living, but um, I met in those days that were kind of rock stars to me, and um, we uh, kind of carried on a bit of a relationship around London because I used to go and see the guitar player um, play in the 101ers um, down in uh, the 100 Club on Oxford Street, and... Um, was Joe Strummer singing at that Joe time? Joe Strummer had had a band, the 101ers, before The Clash. And I met Joe down in this venue called the 101ers before so his was he, set. So was he singing in the 101ers? That's right. He was radical then. It was rhythm and blues more like um, another band... Uh, I can't right remember. It was very R&B orientated, and um, he was a great guitar player and a good songwriter, I guess. So you just stumbled into Joe Strummer. Yeah, that's right, yeah. 
And how about when you saw Joe later with The Clash? Was Were you still living next door at that time? I was still living on a place called South Villas where I was operating this record label out of a bed set and using the payphone on the landing for our contact number. It was a communal phone, and I put the number on that record sleeve saying it was my phone in those days, and we had to plug it with two Ps and five Ps. You could not even say hello to anybody before you had to plug it with another coin. What was Joe Strummer like in the 101ers? Did you like him better in the 101ers than The Clash? I kind of did a bit. It was more um, uh, commercial to me. Um, All the new songs that everybody was writing, we were all having a hard time receiving any of uh, the inspiration that any of these bands, even Vic um, in in Subway Sec, it always used to remind me of Frank Sinatra. He had these modest way of going on stage with his guitar. And um, I used to think, wow, the music scene has changed. And just to waffle on about this, now I'm getting all um, inspired. Um, Another band who I became very close with was the UK Subs. And Charlie and Knox played in a band together called Something Urban Dogs. And I used to go and hang out at their gigs. But Knox had a bit of a drug problem. And we used to always use phone box in Camden Station. And there was this one guy. There was a queue of three or four guys. Knox was on Valium to get off drugs. And he would pass out in the phone box with his head stuck in Melody Maker. And we'd look and he's not plugging the phone. Wow, is he all right in there? And we used to pull him out of the phone box, OD'd on Valium. Was Knox also in the Vibrators? Knox was in the band called the Vibrators and um, still today a very successful band. Have you seen any of these guys when they do tours? Because they're still out there touring. I I went down to see the UK subs in Vancouver here and and Charlie, who I do still keep in touch with those guys. And um, Knox, he's a really proficient artist. He could like sit here right now and do a sketch of you on on your microphone and you'd think it was like a photograph. And he, he used to paint pictures of David Bowie, and he, he's a, an excellent artist. How would they remember you? As Ron from Sound Ceremony? Exactly, yeah. We're on first name basis, or, you know, we, we, we as the years went on, I, I, I used to call up Knox and Charlie to get kind of advice even. I'd say, well, wh- where are you guys playing lately? Is there any chance of any gigs? And Charlie would say, oh, yeah, go down to the Cricketers at the Oval. We're playing there next week. So I would go out to see the Vibrators or the cl- um, the uh, UK subs if they played anywhere around, really. What about the early Clash gigs that you saw? What was your interaction with the early Clash? Um, the Clash were, like, so successful so quick, they were hardly playing in London for what I knew. They were playing all over England. Bernie was a very successful manager, so he just got them out on the road, it seemed to me. I remember it seemed like they were hardly ever in town when I kind of was Did you ever go over and jam with them or talk to them? We used to jam at the rehearsal studio. Um, the uh, Bernie studio so if the class were ending their studio and they were still stumbling away on the guitar and Robert and I had a chance to kind of play um, Joe would say oh here I got a song for you and he would come thrashing in on his guitar and I was like in awe because by this time the vibrators and the UK subs were like on top of the pops these bands had made it to like as high as you could want to in the European scene. If you made Top and the Pops, by this time you had sold out. Everything that they said they weren't going to do, they were like the best bands in the world. 
And when you were jamming with The Clash, did you take some of those song ideas at all? I must have. You know, when I look back, when as um, the rhythms and the sound, Joe Strummer did have that sound. He has a sustained sound where his rhythms were just so um, fluent. And and I and now looking back, I would say, yeah, I might have thought if I could get a sound like Joe Strummer, I'd have a great guitar sound. This is incredible. So The Clash would know sound ceremony from Nanaimo, British Columbia, Canada? Well, they kind of would because we were actually all, you know, I was hustling the same manager, but whether they would want to, um, you know, really admit much as I'm name-dropping them, I'm sure they don't go out and say, yeah, oh, I remember I heard the Guitar Star album because our, our, our songs were um, a lot different. And when Big Audio Dynamite came out, they were actually, by that time, influenced by reggae. And they had a multicultural band going with Big Audio Dynamite, which was the other guitar player from the class who now is dead i think what was a typical day for you ron we're speaking to ron from sound ceremony like in england back then what did you look like versus the punk guys did you go over to bernie's house drink some beers do some jamming what was like a typical day um exactly i'd get up in the morning if i think he was up i'd say have you listened i'd be knocking on his door so you'd be bugging bernie quite a bit a little bit he was so close the closest going to go i'd say have you listened to those albums yet i was thinking by this time i'm gonna make it if i could get bernie rhodes as my manager i'll be up there with the clash and all that and then i started thinking wow am i really up to this because their work schedules were brutal i was having a hard time getting out of bed in the morning i remember the first single i had released i was still in bed like they, the record plugger phoned me and says, we even know it's going to be played on the, the, the um, Radio 1 schedule at 11 o'clock. I was still in bed. And when they said, Ron Warren Ganderton, Giggle Limits with Tears, my body convulsed so much. I think I flipped out of bed. I ended up falling on the floor, knocking over the transistor radio. What about gigs? Did you get a chance to play with The Clash, at least, or UK uh, subs or the vibrators? No, even the one winners. Boy, you were lucky to get into there. Like, gigs. did Bernie get you anything? Um, never really uh, pushed it, you know. I wasn't one to say, oh, get me on the guest list. Even in the end, I think um, Charlie would say, oh, I'll put your name on the guest list by this time. But if I wasn't invited, I didn't really push but my with the band in. playing weren't you playing any shows with a band we we would played all the same venues we played ding walls um the brecknock the music machine in fact i wrote another name to drop i remember a meeting um billy idol and this time he was in generation x and wow he was so cool bleach blonde hair red leather jackets and he had such a trend going on i remember i was walking down um where he lived in Notting Hill Gate one Saturday, and he obviously didn't remember meeting me, and I was staring at him, hoping he would say, oh, like, hi, Ron, and he was pushing um, 4 by 12 cabinets out of a van into his flat, and I looked over, he says, what the fuck are you staring at? And you were just like, <laughs> you were, you were, what did you say? I, I just turned away and walked away, I said, obviously he doesn't remember me. Did people know much about Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada? Because over in England, there were some Vancouverites connected with the Sex Pistols. Jim Walker, the yeah. original drummer of Public Image Limited, was in the punk band The Furies from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Were there any Vancouver people that you met over there? Pointed Sticks eventually went to England for a little tour. Did you catch up with any Vancouverites over there? Some of the guys were playing in a band called The Straps over there. Was there any connection? You know, to be honest with you, 
and and uh, other Canadians. I, I kind of was avoiding Canada. I was thinking that it was maybe not going to be the connections I needed. So if any of the names, Canadian bands were in there, I actually, to be honest with you, spent more time avoiding them. How about for the Sex Pistols? Their first gig in yeah, London? Remarkable again. If you're on the London scene, you never know who you're going to bump into or what's going to happen. You set the scene for people, people in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada and the world. What was that like? Well, it was pretty exciting, and and if there were any Canadians, what was, they were take overjoyed. us back to where was this happening? Well, this was and how did it, how place. did this happen? How did you end up at the Sex Pistols' first London gig? It was a place called the Nashville, where we were all playing, and I remember a, a, an ex girlfriend I had. She introduced me to Phil Loynett, the bass player from Thin Lizzy, and Scott Gorham, a great guitar player one night she said oh I used to go out with this guy over there let's go say hello to him and she says oh Ron plays guitar oh this is Scott and um, I says oh what band do you play to playing he says I'm a guitar player Thin Lizzy so I, I barely even said well yeah I got a guitar star album record out you know I was sort of a bit shy in those respects but one night we were cruising past the Nashville Keith and I the bass player that I played with for years and we were actually on our way to the Hard Rock Cafe and um, we, he says oh well, let's take a look see who's playing at the Nashville and there was this sandwich board out front and it said the Sex Pistols in like purple and pink and colored writing and all these people with dyed hair and Mohicans out there and, and bobby pins everywhere and we had the nerve to walk up to a couple of the girls say who's playing here and they, they said the Sex Pistols we almost cracked up over the name saying wow the Sex Pistols who'd we call that name and we says yeah well, maybe we'll pass and we wandered out to the Hard Rock Cafe when in fact they probably could have seen the first Sex Pistols by just pushing in saying we're always drinking here let us in but it was packed and uh, it was a great gig for to remember back to what were they like live? Radical. It was like scary because um, they would drink so much before they went on stage and they had beers, uh, pints of beer on the stage. If you crossed them, they would throw a pint of beer over you. So you never want to be in the front row. And then all that spitting thing was going on and they were spitting at each other and the guitar players were like vomiting on the stage and you were thinking, holy cow, what's wrong with all this? And it was so radical that it was something you might think twice of being involved with. What did you look like? What did you look I, like? I had cropped hair, and it, it was all kind of standing up, so I probably could have got in there with what too much of a, a fashion trend, but I can't say I really had the nerve to be going spitting in there. Did you see the Sex Pistols after that? Um, after that, no, I didn't. But where I used to run into Johnny Rotten was, is we went to the first, um, what were they called? An all-girls Runaways? Band. No. The, the, the Slits? The Slits. I went to see the first Slits gig at the um, Dingwalls. And the poor girl broke a guitar string. She couldn't get it turned up and it tuned up. She was trying to turn up and says, Oh, I broke a string. Everybody just shout out, just play. And she just started thrashing on that guitar, less one string, and being out of tune. And the most radical sounds they came up with. And there I was standing right next to Johnny Rotten, who in fact was going out with uh, the mother of the lead singer in the band. Nora. 
Yeah, so that was kind of a strange experience. We weren't too chummy-chummy, but we were standing right there as close as we'd want to get to the slits. Did you go to the Clash Victoria Park gig? You know, it was like one of those big anti-racism stuff. Because you were living in South London at the time, and there was some crazy riots and stuff going on. Did you get caught up in any of the National That's Front right. stuff? I was in London um, at the Notting Hill Gate riots, which the Clash... Uh, um, were supposedly quite involved in writing. I think they wrote a song about those riots. And then I was living in Brixton for years and got out and moved to North London, Camden, when in fact the Brixton riots occurred. And those were the type of things where your life would be threatened. If you were on the streets, they were burning cars and they were setting buildings on fire. And it was actually quite terrifying to be close to that. How many Clash gigs did you see? Did you see that big gig that they played at Victoria Park where Jimmy Percy sang? I I didn't, but I went to a lot of Victoria Park gigs. They were sort of um, a, a venue or a place where all kinds of uh, um, uh, occasions went on. And I, I particularly wasn't at that particular Clash gig, that's for sure. How about Deptford? Deptford had a lot of punk fanzines come out of it, like Sniff and Glue. Do you yeah. remember any of the punk fanzines, Deptford? I do. In fact, um, now that you mentioned Sniff and Glue, um, I probably submitted records to them. And um, I uh, uh, hung out near Deptford because I think that's where um, a guitar player that has come to Vancouver just recently... Um, a solo acoustic player that um, uh, writes songs about a lot of uh, up-and-coming events. And for the life of me, I can't remember his name. How were you reviewed in Sniffing Glue and the fanzines and Melody Maker and Enemy? They gave you some press. Is that review in the Sound Ceremony booklet? We're speaking to Ron from Sound Ceremony. There's a booklet, and on the back, there's like a review. Is that from Melody Maker? Um, what reviews do you get? What Do you remember actually getting a review? Uh, it was know, hard to get a review. I was determined I wasn't going to say this, but um, it has become quite funny. Um, of course, the Sniffing Glue and Rough Trade Records and fanzines were so cool in those days, you, you could always get a little plug, where if you couldn't in the enemy and t sounds and Melody Maker, um, you could always get a mention. And Mick Mercer, who I'd like to maybe talk more about, a journalist in London that wrote for Melody Maker, that's the review that I posted, and he gave me like a four-star review, and there was like other reviews with the Rolling Stones that he didn't create um, higher stars for, and Mick had a, a fanzine in those days. But I submitted an album to NME, and I thought, this is going to be my big break. And then one day I heard that Melody Maker had a copy of the Guitar Star album. So I'm down there at the newsstand every day. And, of course, I'd bump into Charlie or Knox from the Vibers, and we wouldn't buy the magazines. we just look through them at the newsstands. And I'm standing there reading the first ever Sound Ceremony review. And I said to Knox, I said, have a look at this. And as I'm reading down, I almost cried. The review artist said in these words, and I was never going to... In fact, I took that Melody Maker and I like, burnt it. He says, I got this album by Ron Warren Gannerton called Guitar Star. He said, this is the most obscure album I've ever heard. He said, this thing sounds like such a lot of shit. When I threw it out of my office window, it smashed into smithereens. And I read that, and I was almost in tears standing there with my colleagues reading my first ever review. So that's how it all started for me. Bow, boom! <laughs> 
for the release dates of the records, the guitar star was 1978, not 1973. Um, I've lost track of the... When, when did you move to England, though? I moved there in 72. And as you said earlier, when punk really kicked off, I had been back to Canada maybe once or even twice by then. So I had got back to London. And those dates... I really can't nail them down, which brings me to, in fact, the, the last inlay that was done on the re-release of One Kind Favors um, guitar star, Jeremy Carghill. Jeremy would be calling me up and emailing me, wanting to get all these dates straight for the inlay. And I almost got paranoid. I thought, is this big brother? Like, I'm afraid to get any of my dates wrong. And if I give him any dates, he would call me up and say, is there any other references? And he would call Keith Turner up in California and get reference. He'd call... Um, uh, Vic Goddard up in London, England, and he was working on the exact dates for One Kind Favor so vigilantly, I was starting to get worried about his investigation into it. I thought maybe it was Inland Revenue or something after me, or American Taxman after all these years. But Jeremy um, writes for uh, Research uh, Magazine, um, kind of lost records. And he works up for a fanzine in the USA, and he's the assistant editor of Ugly Things magazine. So just my luck, um, most of my uh, claim to fame now is coming out of Ugly Things magazine. Joe Meek. What's your Joe Meek connection? Joe Meek. Again, I ended up in the Joe Meek Appreciation Society. And I grew up, again in Nanaimo, ice skating to Telstar on Friday nights, and there'd be couples only. You'd go ask a girl to skate with you, and uh, um, Telstar would come off. I got to England and got this contact and letter from the side. How would you like to be a member? We've taken on your Guitar Star album as an edit style of Joe Meek. And I thought, well, who's Joe Meek? And he had this hit with Telstar, and I went down and met them all in society. And Joe, of course, is dead now, and it was called the Appreciation Society. And I was such a poor editor, I didn't realize you had to cut your splices on the angle on this cutting board to get the two sounds to emerge in each other. I would just cut it off blank on just the cut and put my leader tape in there. And my colleague Keith didn't want to correct me. I'm there working, thinking I got it going on at my education in um, sound editing and when we got the album back it just went kabang and it just like ended no delays no sound edit and they thought I was doing this uh, authentically and copying Joe Meek's style of editing and it was just all a coincidence through my lack of skills and they ended up saying I edited like Joe Meek and again a great claim to fame I'm so proud of and ended up going to the pubs and all the meetings with the Joe Meek Society for years and years after the songs do end a few of them quite abruptly don't well now they? you know why and I was also curious if we move on lastly winding up here with the man known as Sound ceremony. Ron, Star Force Studios, Creation Records. When did you first encounter Creation Records? Now, there's another exciting experience. I decided I was going to go really independent and start up a recording studio. So I bought in, I borrowed some money, and we bought a desk and a two-inch ITAM machine, and we are going to be cracking the recording industry. And all of a sudden, some guys moved upstairs, and uh, they were called Creation Records. And the... Leader of the Creation Records was Alan McGee, and he said, I'd like to uh, book the studio to uh, 
um, have my bands rehearsed down there? And I said, yeah, oh, great. And I came in one night, and there's radical sound. And, and I says, well, Alan, um, who, who's the band down there tonight? And he said, Jesus and Mary Chain. I said, Jesus and Mary Chain? I says, that's one heck of a name. And he says, yeah. He says, this is going to be the biggest deal since the Sex Pistols. He says, I have major record labels in London that want them, in the UK, and I've got um, calls from, um, I forget what that label was called, but a, a real big, like Herb Alfred's label, A&M, I think it was, in the US, and he says, I'm just bidding this band off. He says, there's so much money being um, negotiated with this band, Jesus and Mary Chain, at the moment. He says, I I I've got it made. And I says, okay, well, I guess you'll be afford your studio fees tonight. I won't have to think I'm doing any favors here. He says, yeah, no problem. Then the next band, Primal Scream, as they broke up and changed their name to Primal Scream, we had My Bloody Valentine. And um, Was Oasis in there too? There you go, Oasis, my dreaded nightmare. Those guys, I was afraid to go into the studio. So just a little set up here. You had your own studio. And and is that how you're making in. money? Is that how you're making that's money? That's right. I was making money through renting and out. And that's how you encountered creation. And they, they were in the same upstairs. building? They had the same building. They had by the fluke, office right above fluke, it. By fluke, you moved into the same exactly. building. Exactly. And they discovered your studio. Yeah, and they used to hire it out for all these bands. And when Oasis came in, those guys were so violent to each other that I was afraid to go in and get in the middle of those two brothers fighting. Did you help mix them or record them? Um, we demo taped them. Whereas Keith, again, worked in this studio. And when I talked to Keith the other night um, and people said to you, do you remember these bands? I remember them a little more than Keith because Keith by this time had gone into progressive rock and he viewed punk or even new wave um, as a pretty amateur approach to music because he was so technical and skilled but he actually did demo tapes for all those bands and he doesn't even remember hardly any of them I says you must remember Osasis he says not really my bloody valentine he says I have a slight recognition I says what about Jesus Mary Chain that went on to be and he says, I remember Alan McGee, because he used to often come down and say, well, can I have the tape from tonight's session and, and slip the money to Keith? So he was just so busy and biased. Music to him was just um, an art and a skill. So he'd record these and he'd come up with excellent demos that Alan was very happy with. But he doesn't remember hardly any of it. Oasis, so he said they were scared. They were fighting each other? Was it Liam and Noel fighting each other? What was going on? They would drink too much, and they had this brotherly relationship that if they didn't agree on something or one of them didn't play it like the other one wanted to play, it would become push and shove, and they were so drunk that they used to just tear that studio apart. Did the songs sound good or anything like that? Did any of these bands have good songs? Well... They did have to your mind. I mean, what happened? Sound. They had a distinct Beatles sound, and they had guitars, Rickenbackers that created those sounds. And I, I would just say, yeah, that sounds like the Beatles. So you just fell into the Sex Pistols. You just fell All into this was Oasis. Destiny. You fell into that Paul McCartney thing. Yeah, with the Jimi Hendrix. Well, there was more to the Paul thing. We had an um, our photographer Pete True um, was a partner with Linda McCartney. And Linda McCartney would take all the pictures, and Pete printed the pictures for her um, 
uh, books that she had. She had pictures of every rock star. Jimi Hendrix, the Beatles, any obscure 60s band. She had pictures of them. So one day we went to um, the, the book uh, debut, I guess you'd call him in those days, and Paul McCartney was there. And people would say, oh, Ron, this is Linda, this is Paul. Well, I was kind of just speechless. Never really crossed paths with Paul again until um, one day his son was sitting in the studio and I introduced me to Heather McCartney before she had her studio um, in Paris and her design. Before she was even designing and looking for a new future, I met Heather McCartney and um, the Paul's son played guitar and um, he and I had a little jam and Pete would say this is the best guitar player in Canada next to you heard of Brian Adams he says this guy's the next best player in Canada and, and, and he would just shake his head and we sit down and had a little jam and I often thought wow this guy's so famous. And it was you met through your photographer? You met Paul McCartney through your photographer? Your, what do you mean your photographer? Um, I, Pete True, who is still one of my best friends, he lives in Portugal now, he took the pictures uh, for my record sleeves and my online photos of Vox Nouveau and any posters that we needed or, or pictures for... Um, uh, labels, etc. I met him through his brother. His brother, um, I, I contacted a photographer, and his he said, "Oh, you want to meet my brother? My brother plays guitar, and he's really into pop music." But he and, wasn't on salary with you or anything, was he? Um, well, you know what, Pete got me drunk one night and says you owe me so much money and I'm keeping track of it he says I got drunk he says I want you to sign here he says when you die he says everything in your career comes to me I says yeah all right and I signed it he says I still have that <laughs> Boom! And that brings us to the end of the Nardwarder Human Serviette Radio Show Sound Ceremony, Ron. It's incredible. And now your friend Pete is going to own a master to all your records Maybe. that have been reissued here. And if people are interested, again, you have some more shout-outs you wanted to give there? Well, just to dispute that, Keith Turner, I told him, when I'm dead and gone, if you're still alive, will you carry on with the career of Sound Ceremony? He said he would. I says, I'll leave you a few of my 13 guitars in my will. And I have a manager, Susie, that works for Hard Handle Management, and she'll be listening. A shout out to her. Thank you, Susie, for all the work that you've done for me. And then, of course, right back to one kind favor. Thank you, Nick, for continuing on my career. And um, Deep Thoughts, JP, Jamaican Plains. And Nick, lastly here, oh, sorry, what, you got them all there? Uh, there's so many of them here. Um, of course, Keith Turner. Oh, and can I quickly get into, thank you UBC for teaching me to swim in your um, Olympic pool and my big jump off the second tower. Um, thank you, UBC, for my hockey school that I went to when I was a teenager. And um, thank you, uh, Blair Fisher, for letting me into the Douglas College Music Certificate course, which upped my skills to recording with um, Logic Pro that's continued my career so um, affluently with Apple Crow. Or Apple Pro Logic and my two um, mentors at Apple, um, uh, Sandeek 
and at Apple, Apple uh, recording instructions that I'm taking Sunday to get my logic top, and I go down to Granville Street and um, uh, work with them on and, and shout out recording. to Zulu Records, of course, Zulu Records, For, Neptune Records. That's where I met you. And lastly, lastly, here, Ron, I wanted to ask you: We found these records in the CITR vaults. What are these? This is, these are some more seven inches. One is recorded at Abbey Road with sound ceremony. That's right. My big came to flame for my recording career was um, this uh, single, You're Breaking My Heart, which Pete True took the um, picture on the front of this and designed this sleeve. Um, credits Abbey Road Studios for my peak in recording career. And um, uh, the other single, um, Shame On You and uh, Find A Way Out, which uh, a couple of my favorite songs, really, which we didn't touch on, Smothered in Love, the guitar and that. And if you can ever find these uh, singles floating around, Nadwar, I should like to thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for coming in. And we're going to end here with the song Memories off the Precious Album because we're going through all these memories. What's Memories about? Memories. Um, Again, just think about the memories and uh, the things that uh, went by in my life that I do remember for uh, the point has got me to today well thanks so much ron and if people want to get a hold of you or sound ceremony how can you do that you're on twitter aren't you um i guess we're on twitter again management company takes care of all that for me but i'm so happy for my facebook and anybody out there that so wants type to be in on sound ceremony sound ceremony ron warren gannett and brings you right to all this and uh looking forward to uh lots of new uh followers for the sound ceremony future I'm sure you'll be getting them after being on the Nardwarty Human Serviette radio show. Well, thanks so much, Ron. Anything else you want to add to the people out there at all? Why should people care about sound ceremony? Why should people care? Um, I went into this for uh, inspiration, not for teaching anybody anything. But if you play guitar, like this new song that's coming out, Guitars in Your Face, you've got a friend for life. So if your girlfriend leaves you, pick up a guitar. If your uh, wife divorces you join a rock band your guitar can be with you till the day you die well thanks so much ron keep on rocking in the free world and do do the loot do do do
get hurt. 